But if you go into the industry, especially for a, in a small company, a smaller company, you have a lot of other roles that you just have to take and start working with, even though you don't necessarily have the right, you know, background or the right, you know, experience for that. And I actually found that, that for myself, it's it's the right thing to do because it helps you grow. And so I'm a very, I'm a huge believer in the growth mindset in general. Um, I don't believe anybody has anything, you know, that they're born with that gives them the ability to do everything we're doing. I believe it's all growth. It's all things you learn and all in, intentionally. If you're intentional about your growth and your learning, you can achieve really remarkable things. Hi there. Welcome back for another Macademia podcast episode. Myself, Oferizal Barnea and Elena Iskovic get together with fascinating people to explore different ways science and scientific careers can be developed outside of academia. Before we introduce our guest for today, we want to thank you, yeah, you, that join our Macademia group on Facebook, follow our account at MacademiaP on Twitter, rated our little project, liked our work, or shared it with a friend or colleague. This, aside from motivating us, support others to join this important conversation as we explore those very different ways of how science is much more than just academia. Well, hello, Ohad. How are you today? Doing well. I'm great. How are you, Ofer? Uh, you know, I can't complain, but uh, I don't think nobody, like, I think nobody cares, but I'm very happy that you joined us today. Um, we had our preliminary talk before this interview, and and I'm just going to share that I am very intrigued, both in your approach to uh, science, to academia, to for, uh, for the main point of this podcast is the transitioning process, and as well as your, your overall view on science and the science you do. So let's start by just, all right, give us your elevator pitch. Who are you? What are you doing? Yeah, thanks, Ofer. Uh, thanks for that nice introduction. Um, so I'm a scientist by, by training and, and also in my core. Um, right now, uh, I'm a, and I'm a computational scientist. That's something that's uh, worth noticing. So a computational biologist or bioinformatician, there's many words. They all mean roughly you know, similar things, depending on your uh, point of view. So I'm a computational biologist by training. And right now, um, I'm working at a company called Century Therapeutics, which is developing um, novel cancer therapies. I'm the head of computational biology and data science there. Um, prior to that, I worked at other biotech um, or biopharma industries um, in cancer um, testing. So I worked at Garden Health for, for a while. And then before that, I worked at a company called Aravel that was more in the wellness space and disease prevention space. So um, in the past few years, I've worked at different parts of the biotech industry. So that's, I guess that's my elevator pitch. But my main mission is, has always been uh, to apply, you know, my, my tool, my, my, my uh, skills like bioinformatics and machine learning to help patients or, or humans in, in, in large to help them either uh, avoid disease or if they have a disease, um, basically get, get cure or get better drugs um, to help them and their families. Uh, sounds sounds amazing, but let's go back. You said apply. Okay, application is is kind of a 
I don't know, it's not a word uh, used commonly in academia. So where the, when this like passion for application arises uh, during your academic route? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, I mean, like I said, I'm a classically trained computational biologist, which, which basically means for, for those of, you know, those who uh, know this uh, area less, is you kind of have a dual training in both biology and computer science at the same time. And I did my, uh, my training, my initial uh, bachelor's degree in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, where this program was just getting started. So I was one of the first, um, the first groups that actually had this training as uh, from day one of like, these both these dual, uh, these dual uh, fields. Uh, and I found that fascinating because I really enjoyed the computer science part of it, the mathematics, um, you know, everything around logic and whatnot. But I also found biology to be fascinating, right? So, but, but to, to make, to, to come back to your question, I mean, what you're being trained in academia is to think broadly about research and how to apply these tools to identify, you know, um, novel, novel mechanisms or understand the biology better. So that's what I was working on during my um, master's and PhD was more about trying to understand mechanisms or trying to build tools, computer science-based tools or machine learning-based tools to help um, uncover biology in a sense. Um, but, but back in my mind, right, back, back then, um, I always had a feeling that um, it's too remote, right? It's, too, it's not connected to anything in the real world, right? It's more um, theoretical. So, you know, publishing papers and whatnot is obviously important, and these papers can influence other thinkers, um, but you're not close uh, to the patients. So when I moved to my postdoc at University of Washington in Seattle, I tried to um, go to a lab that has more collaborations with, uh, with clinicians, and, and I, I was just actively seeking them as well. Um, during my postdoc, and and like I said, this also um, ha- you know gave me the feeling that I wanted to come even closer to the patient. So, um, and we can probably talk about the transition from academia to the industry, but that was one of the key elements there um, that you know um, helped me make this decision um, of of transitioning from academia to being in the industry. But but when you transitioned from your PhD towards the postdoc. At that point, you were you were already uh, planning to do this transition, or you thought, "Hey, I could do applicable science within academia and translate it out." Yeah, I, I think I think that I mean, first of all, I didn't have a clear idea, right? I wasn't one hundred percent sure um, on on my you know my my long term future. Um, my initial um, you know. I guess my my training, as as you well as you're well aware of, my training was more more geared towards staying in academia, right? So no one in academia is trained to leave academia. That's not how you know it's a self sustaining process, right? So uh, they don't have any they don't have an incentive to do that, um, which we can talk about later. But so coming into my postdoc, I definitely uh, had a, you know my thought process was more toward more geared toward uh, you know opening a lab, being a PI and whatnot. Um, but definitely my, my overall thoughts were, how do I work with people that are touching real patients? So in my, during my postdoc, yes, I'm a computational person. I worked a lot on just developing tools and publishing papers, but I also had very meaningful collaborations with clinicians um, uh, working uh, at a Seattle uh, Children's Hospital. Um, and, and that really, um, you know, that was really important to me. And I envisioned that if I would, you know, uh, transition to become a PI, I would definitely want to harbor these kinds of collaborations with clinicians so that I could, you know, make an impact 
you know, even at, at, at the time that I'm working and not necessarily just publishing paper and seeing how, you know, it makes an impact maybe later. Um, so that was something I was thinking about definitely during my postdoc. But I think that the, the transition to that, to, to, to the industry was kind of, uh, uh, you know, fortunate. It, it was, it was a company, you know, culmination of different things. I mean, this was that this key element of wanting to, um, to touch more people or to have more impact in real time, but also just, you know, you know, this event of a company that I learned about while I was in my postdoc that I just thought was an amazing, you know, uh, endeavor and got me really, really interested. Um, and so kind of these two things together, um, you know, made me make this transition or, or the, the, these were key elements in that decision. That's cool. So, so you said this, uh, this company event was, was an opportunity, but there are like during your postdoc, there were other opportunities that you explored career-wise. Maybe, you know, being an entrepreneur or a leading scientist in a company is not, is not made for all, okay? It's not, not everyone cup of tea or cup of coffee because we're both from Israel and less, less drinking tea. Uh, but so what were other options you were considering and how you approached it? So how you uh, um, uh, took advantage of this area. Seattle is amazing, okay? And, and uh, people can see it, but you have the background of Seattle, which is both beautiful and very vibrant scientifically. Yeah. So what kind of op like opportunities you took advantage of at the UW at University of Washington? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, for me, I felt like I made a few decisions, um, a few no-go decisions, right? Or things I wanted, I knew I didn't want to do, right? This is what kind of the way I, I usually work is, First, I want to make sure that I, you know, eliminate uh, things I don't want to do, and then I have, you know, what's left. So, the two things I didn't want to do was stay in academia without opening my own lab, right? So I had these opportunities, like being a staff scientist um, or being in, at a core, which, which were all, you know, I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about that. It just wasn't for me because I thought that. Um, if I would stay in academia, I would want to drive my own lab and the decisions and collaborations and, and things like that, right? So I decided if I'm staying in academia, it's only to open a lab. And then um, likewise, I decided if I'm leaving academia and going to the industry, it's only if I'm staying in life sciences and patients and people, and I'm not going to work at Amazon or Microsoft or Google, which are all, you know, big in Seattle and people with my kind of training, which is basically, you know, a flavor of data science, right? At the end of the day, I know, I'm, you know, a lot of knowledge, a lot of domain knowledge about biology and, you know, next generation sequencing and whatnot and DNA. But at the end of the day, it's data science with a domain expertise, right? So you can always apply the data science tools outside of your domain of expertise and work at Facebook or Amazon or Google, and they're actively recruiting, right? Um, but I made the decision, if I'm leaving to the industry, it's not to one of these industries. I only want to work in life sciences because, you know, that would speak to my core value of, of contribution and impact um, in a way that speaks to me. So I decided if I'm going to the industry, it's only to something like that. And if I'm staying in academia, it's only to open my own lab. So that these were my two big options, really. Um, I hope that answers your question um, about opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, it's very important. It's a point we constantly reiterate to our listeners is the fact that you you don't have to stumble upon a career. You can plan. And as you said, you can start by eliminating what you want to do. I, for once, I am, I admire people who do, who do like science communication, but it's not something I want to do. So that's off the table. I don't want to be um, 
uh, I don't know, I don't want to be a core scientist in the university as well. That's off the table. I know what I want to do. And then I plan my, my career accordingly and training accordingly and, and not stumbling upon it like late stage of a postdoc or PhD to whatever is out there and whatever is applicable. But you mentioned like uh, you, you're not going into those uh, uh, big tech kind of companies, but those big tech kind of companies also have like ventures and, and life sciences. So is is that, and you said your first, your first uh, out, like out of academic experience was in wellness, right? So uh, I don't know, like Amazon Health or Facebook or kind of like Fitbit and stuff like that, they're wellness. So that, that was not big enough impact or not the kind of impact? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, you're right. I have to make a distinction, right? Because Google, for example, or Alphabet or whatever we want to call it, has a company called Verily uh, Life Sciences, which is um, a life sciences company, and they're doing you know great work. Um, Amazon, it's slightly different. They don't really have you know because um, I've looked into these as well, right? They don't have really a life sciences. They have life sciences solutions, so basically you know genomics on the cloud and things like that. So these are more software solutions. They're not doing research into life sciences per se, like Verily, right? Um, so yeah, I wouldn't. So I mean, in that sense, I do. I, I will make the distinction. I mean, these kind of companies are companies that I would perhaps, you know, consider. Um, so I, I didn't have a clear idea of what field I wanted to go into life sciences, whether it's wellness, whether it's testing, whether it's oncology, whether it's, you know, other things. I didn't have that clear of an idea. Um, so I was, you know, I was looking into things that just looked interesting. It's some, sometimes the way I... I, I <laughs> I, I uh, you know, I act or I perform is, is basically looking for things that are interesting. That's how I got to computational biology, you know, at the beginning. I didn't know anything about it, but it just seemed really, really interesting to combine computer science and biology. And I didn't know a lot about both of these at the time, right? So sometimes I just, um, that's the way I act. And so the company that I ended up working with wasn't necessarily because I wanted to go into wellness versus going, uh, you know, into disease uh, care or, or, or drug development. It was more just that unique company just seemed so interesting to me on, on, on multiple levels. Um, and also, you know, just fortunate to me um, after I, you know, after my experience there and in other places, I realized that for me, smaller companies are, 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 are a much better choice uh, than larger companies. So that's something I learned along the way. And so, again, just fortunate to me, it was a young company and a very small company at the time. So um, it just worked out really well in that sense. Yeah, so that's very interesting. So this this distinction, this if I find a distinction between smaller and larger companies. So there are a lot of people where again, like I want to be a scientist, but there, in your perspective, there is a big difference between being a computational scientist or or a scientist like benchtop scientist in in big pharma or small startup. So if you can now from years of experience in that perspective, um, put like a a couple of like hashtags. What is the what is the uniqueness about being a scientist in a small startup versus like a big pharma? And what are like what kind of people would it fit? I like either either will fit you. Yeah. So first of all, just a disclaimer. I don't I don't consider myself to be an expert uh, in this, but I, I'm always happy to talk about what I you know what I've seen so far. So obviously, everybody has to take this with a grain of salt. Um, but for me, the biggest difference, and this applies, I think, both doesn't matter if you're a bench scientist or computational scientist, that this applies equally, is really about um, your scope of impact, right? 
um, and, and, and the amount of responsibilities and the different types of responsibilities you're taking upon yourself, right? So uh, for me, what I've seen so far, right, is in smaller companies, when you, when you, um, when you join such a, you know, an endeavor, which is a smaller company, and again, you know, all of these things are relative, right? So small could be very, very small, like, you know, you're one of the first people in the door, like 10 people, or it could be 100 people, that's still small. Um, and then I, I feel like somewhere around a few hundred is when this, the transition really happens. I'm not sure. I mean, I've never worked at a company with 10,000 people, but, but I'm not sure it, it would be very different than, you know, a thousand people, right? So um, because really what happens is um, just from the nature of business, uh, you know, just things get narrower. So positions get, you know, your, your scope of responsibility becomes narrower. You become more, you know, more of an expert or more of, um, you know, you work more on one thing or two things um, versus in a smaller company, you have just a wider range of responsibilities. And, you know, this entails, it depends on, on your preference, right? I mean, obviously one of the, you know, one of the benefits of a larger company is more stability and more training. You come in, First of all, the job is way more is a lot more stable, right? Because it's a larger company. They're not going to go out of business or change their, you know, change their, um, you know, vision or something like that in the middle. And also, you come into a well organized organization where you can get all the training you need. You have the managers. You have like line of command. So you know, in that sense, it's really good to keep to help you um, evolve and learn, right? Smaller company, you might not really have both, right? So it's less stable. There's more risk, but also. There is less of a hierarchy and less of a um, you know system that's already set up, so you don't have necessarily the the training you would have at a larger company, and you have to learn a lot of the things by yourself and just by trying and failing. Um, and also, you, you will have to wear more hats. You'll have to do many different things that not necessarily are in your job description, right? Um, so some people are you know would fit better to this role, some people fit bit better to that role, but that's not saying anything bad about um, about both. I mean, both are valid decisions valid choices for sure yeah definitely okay so this first position outside of academia um what what was the science there what got you hooked on that that really got yeah. you outside yeah i'm sorry i'm smiling because every time i think about that company um it makes me smile which is obviously great uh, it also makes me sad because it went out of business uh, you know after uh, almost three years that i was there so that's that's a, that's a sad note but yeah, um, so my first company out of academia after my postdoc uh, is a company, a startup that was uh, called Arivale, um in Seattle. And it was uh, a very, very unique combination or a very, very unique vision. And so the idea was it was a wellness um, company or they actually, uh, they, actually, uh, <laughs> they actually termed the coin uh, scientific wellness and they trademarked it, um, scientific wellness. And so the idea there was you would measure a lot of... Um, analyze a lot of markers on each individual and from these markers you will um you know identify um opportunities for these for this individual to improve their wellness and avoid disease so that's one side of the business and i'm, I'm going to dive into that in a second that's the data side and the science side but very uniquely unlike you know a company like fitbit that could basically claim a similar you know premise it was act, it was actually joined with a very um, you know rigorous behavioral science and coaching. So they so Arville employed live coaches who are all amazing people, uh, and then they these coaches were actually the ones driving the behavioral change with the uh, with the clients or we call them uh, you know uh, members. Um, so this combination of data 
and, and, and the coaching was actually really, really empowering and powerful. And you could see how people are changing their lives all the time. So for me, it was like the dream job because on the one hand, we could, we could see how we're affecting people's lives in real time. So it would, you know, every week or every, you know, every meeting uh, that we had at the whole company, a coach would stand up and they would tell a member story and how it, this, you know, th- we, we changed their, this person's lives and it was so, so inspiring. But at the back end, we were collecting this really unique set of data because um, this is where you get like geeky and about data and what you we were collecting. So we had for every person we were collecting genetics, you know, we we're collecting clinical labs from blood. We were collecting uh, metabolites from the blood. So the metabolome, the proteome from the blood, we we're collecting microbiome data from these individuals. And so you had all this uh, multi-omic comprehensive data set on each person and we we're collecting it over time. Right. So some people were in a program where they were take a blood draw every three months or every six months or every once a year. So then we would have this really, really interesting data set. And we we got to a point where we had that data set on thousands of people. Right. So, you know, three thousand or five thousand, depending on which data set you, uh, you, you think about. Uh, but that was a really, really interesting data set for a computational scientist to uh, hack away and try to identify all these different, you know, correlations or associations. Um, and the nice thing was that when we identified a new thing, we could bring it back to our members and help, you know, introduce that into the program and, and help them, you know, improve another thing or have another insight towards their wellness. Um, so that was a really, really unique, uh, unique place, both in terms of what we were doing, but also just the culture was, uh, was incredible. Yeah. What catches me here is the fact that you, uh, for the first time you worked in, a, in an organization that brought non-science, like, I guess the coaches were not PhD students, were not like scientists. They they had a different set of skills, and you had to translate to to translate data into conclusions and conclusions into actionable items, which are like in a different language. It's like DNA, RNA, and coaching, which is a different language. Right. So so how was how was that? How was that experience like? And and more specifically, like if you think you had the tools to do it coming out from academia. Yeah, I think that's such a super um, interesting point. Um, so for me, first of all, that was one of the highlights. Um, I mean, the data thing is was very similar to what I did in the academia. So analyzing data is something I love and trying to get at the biological insights and mechanisms out of this data. That's what I was doing anyway in academia, and I really enjoyed that. But actually, the part you just mentioned of trying to translate that and trying to explain that and trying to um, kind of work with a variety of different people, with uh, coaches, designers, um, product managers, stuff like that, that was actually even better than I would when I would imagine, right? I actually love that. And, and I think it's really interesting. I mean, for me, and that would be maybe different for someone else, but for me, you know, even though I love the science part and the data part and the geeking out part, to me, actually, um, I love talking about science with non-scientists. It's one of my favorite things to do. And and actually, just for, you know, a point of reference, while I was doing my PhD at the Weizmann Institute in Israel, there was um, a program there called, um, in Hebrew, it's called Mada Laba, which means, uh, you know, science on the tap, like tap, like in a bar. Um, and what we would do there is we would just go out to bars in Israel, and we would talk about our research, no PowerPoint, nothing, just a microphone, and everybody were, you know, just random people uh, just coming to a bar to, her, to to listen to a PhD talk about their research, right? 
And I did that many, many, many times, actually. Um, so I have a lot of experience of just talking about science and trying to explain my uh, research to just the lay person or people from different backgrounds and actually enjoy that very much. Um, so I think that uh, if you're you know, someone who's thinking about going out to the industry, they need to understand, especially in a small company, but also in a larger company, being able to explain your science and what you're doing to a variety of different people with different experiences is actually very, it's a key. So, and you get some of that if you talk to a conference, but at a conference, everybody's a scientist, right? So you get some of it because it's just different backgrounds, but it's not exactly the same. So actually talking about your science with other people that are non-scientists is a crucial, I think it's a crucial uh, skill to have if you, you know, go out to the industry. Great. So taking those opportunities. So yeah, yeah science, and, science and tap, science on the rock, we do this as well here. Um, yeah. Uh, in in the Bay Area, and I, I know this uh, being done as, as well in Israel quite a lot. It's quite a great opportunity to try to explain your your science in a very in a very clear terms, very very quickly and 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 approachably. I, I experienced this today when I tried to do a, um, a business pitch deck for my science. So I'm I have a lot to say, but you need to keep it approachable. You need to keep it simple. Yeah, that's, that's a huge huge challenge. Yeah, and talking about like peach decks and stuff like that you you mentioned a couple of times that this small nimble uh, organization that's your that's your groove that's your zone have you considered um entrepreneurship like driving your own idea your own company leading this from scratch or this is something yeah that's a good question i mean i, I think for me um i have that um so it's weird i mean i have that you know, in, in one sense, I do like this nimble, you know, kind of uh, starting thing from scratch uh, idea. But uh, I don't know why, maybe it's how I was brought up or whatever. Uh, I don't have like, I, ha I don't have enough risk tolerance to completely work from <laughs> scratch. So I love like, I would love joining a company that's, you know, a little bit, you know, starting, but not, it's just, it's hard for me to imagine just dropping in. I know you've done that. So I mean, <laughs> my hat off to you. Um, but I think for me, I like being part of something that's being built and, and whatnot, but I think for me, it's just too much of a, you know, it's too scary, honestly, right. To do something completely from scratch. So I, I'm sure you understand, but you know, I, I'm always in awe of people who do that and, you know, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's quite stressful, but, um, but the most important thing I think in that stage is to find to link up with people like you who are like brilliant and have have a lot of like passion to science and, and are like completely into it. So yeah, so putting out different hats and everything. Um, yeah. Okay, so we have we have mentioned this at the beginning of our talk, and now you 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 did your you did your PhD. You moved you moved half a word away. You did your postdoc. You learned a lot. You transition. You 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 decided to transition back. Now, I guess today at your at, at your position, you you're in charge of like looking at those uh, at those people who are doing the transition today and hiring them. I have many questions on that. So, yeah. as a, as as a leading scientist in a in a in an industry position, what are the like the soft skills you you, you look at at 
the scientist uh, CV resume that you get that really makes them like pop out? Yeah, I think that's a really important question because um, like you said, it's, you know, the soft skills are something that in academia, at least, it's not something that, you know, is emphasized, right, as we both well, well know. I mean, yes, academia is great for, um, you know, you learn a lot about the science that you do, whether it's computational biology, biology, doesn't matter. Um, you learn a lot about how to prepare your experiment, how to uh, analyze data. So all of these things are obviously crucial. And, and that's the, you know, that's the core. You, you, that's something you can't, you can't fake. You either know your science, you know your, you know your analysis, you know your data, or you don't. Um, however, soft skills, I think, is something that's um, not emphasized enough, especially for someone who wants to transition, even if you want to stay in academia, but especially if you want to transition to the industry. I think for me, uh, communication skills is something that I, I just mentioned before. We talked about um, being able to communicate your science and your results to different people of you know, different uh, experiences and perspectives, I think is something that's really crucial. Uh, and so it's something I always uh, try to understand whether the scientists, like what experience do they have about explaining the scientists? Do they only work with other scientists? For example, only even even if it's within science, do they only you know work with other computational biologists in my field, right? Or have they have experience explaining computational data or results to biologists, right? So that's already you know something that not all computational scientists are good at. Sometimes when they talk to biologists, they'll just try to explain everything they did in all the details and they just like the details, like the core gets lost, right? It gets lost in translation. Then there is even more, you know, you know, if it's not a scientist, if it's a business, someone from business development or someone from marketing or someone, you know, just a stakeholder who's, you know, higher, higher in, in ranking, but not a scientist by training, right? So I think the ability to communicate science is, is crucial. And then the other thing I think I really look for, um, in terms of soft skill is the ability to work in a team. So usually it depends again on depends on on you know your your field but for me especially from a computational um, biologist standpoint you work a lot by yourself, right? I mean I know that biologists sometimes they have to work more in collaboration because it's just too much to be done, right? There's an experiment there's so many things that have to happen so they work with in bigger teams. But computational biologists a lot of time can work silo. They can take their data and they can analyze it and can publish papers. And that's what I've done. You know, part of my work as a, you know, PhD or, or postdoc was working just by myself. And I published papers just by myself, right? Um, but to me, within an industry, uh, it's really, really important to be able to work uh, within a part of a team. That's a big transition in my mind from academia to industry, um, especially for computational scientists. So that's something I try to understand. Um, how much do they... Like what experience they have working with teams? Can they describe such an experience? What was the you know makeup of the team? Um, and then lastly, I think the third thing is the ability to drive, and that's usually something that you can pick up pretty fast, is the ability to drive projects by yourself. So especially in a small company, maybe it's less of an issue in a bigger company, but in a small company, you have to be able to drive projects by yourself. You have to be able to be proactive, get the resources you need, schedule the meetings, talk to whoever you need, and just be able to roll things by yourself. Now, a lot of postdocs um, or PhD students have that ability, but not all of them. Again, depending on if they were in the small lab, usually they have more of that. If they were in a huge lab, sometimes not so much, right? Um, and especially if you're transitioning to a smaller company, you have to have that skill of driving things by yourself. Um, I think these are kind of three things I look for usually. 
Yeah, so team and, and communication, better communication or more concise communication, make it make it shorter, make it to the point, make make it with actionable items at the end. That's some yeah. that's some skills that again constantly comes up in our talks and, and everything. No, you have considered as a as a as a career path being a PI, being a, a, a leading group. So do you have advice for for like young people, scientists who are about to open their own lab, how to drive those skills within their group, how to like, like give them those this nudge towards that, a bit more teamwork, a bit more like better communication. Yeah, I mean, I think again, not talking from an experience because I've never been a PI, but I think um, it's Which also- Which is the best, the best position, like yeah, talking also, from the outside. It's also true, I think, you know, Nevertheless, I mean, even if you're in the industry and you have, you, you, you're managing a team, you still have to promote these qualities, right? So it doesn't matter if you're a PI in academia or, um, or in the industry. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you want to help people develop these skills, right? So, you know, uh, first of all, teamwork is something that, you know, whether you're in academia or not, I mean, I think the idea of at least having some of the projects being team projects, right? So everybody could have their own kind of, you know, one, two projects that they're working on mostly, you know, by themselves, but trying to come up with projects that are shared. You know, if you have a lab where someone is computational scientist and you have a biologist, they could work on something together. And that's already, you know, better than just working them by themselves and just coming together at the end to write the, write the paper. Um, and then just when you're meeting as a team, bouncing ideas off each other, everybody has their own perspective. Everybody has their own, you know, knowledge and skill set. I mean, just having a team meeting where people you know, talk about what they're doing, it helps both with the communication and, and also with the teamwork because they start to learn to how to listen to other people and, and listen to actually what they're saying and suggesting. Um, I think that's great. For communication, I would always encourage, like I said, talking to non-scientists. And so whether it's organizing events where um, your your uh, your lab members or teammates can can talk about science in a non-formal environment or not just in a conference. I mean, again, sending someone to, a, to speak at a conference and talk at their poster, that's great. That's already a step in the right direction. Um, so really pushing them to do that, but especially if they can also have a chance to talk about their science and, and, you know, and, and research to a non-scientist, that's, I mean, that's also um, a really important skill, I think. So th this, is, this is the personal incentive of anyone going through the training what what do you perceive as the the uh, the institute incentive and in, in promoting this again you, we, we we said this a couple of times that academia is mostly self-sufficient cheap the academia produces people to go just for academia but there is some sort of change a shift you can see in big universities i guess that here at ucsf you see it at uw uh, weitzman institute is there for a bit already um but what is the incentive of like universities to yeah. have graduates going into industry? I mean, th these are two different questions. I mean, one, the incentive about promoting these soft skills, I think, is is there uh, regardless of industry. Because even if you're uh, even if you're um, you know training someone to stay in academia, having a scientist that can talk about his research to non-scientists is a win anyway. Even if they're in academia, um, if they have to you know 
get a grant or 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 talk to investors or or um, fundraise or something like that. Not everybody will be a scientist. So you know, every institute has their like you know uh, rock stars that they always bring to all these events because they know this person can talk to anybody about science and get them excited. So having everybody having that ability, that's you know that's a win, uh, even in, in, even for academia. And then I think. Um, the question of whether academia needs to um, think about industry, I think, I mean, there is a shift. It's changing. Um, every institute is taking their own kind of time um, to do to do this change. But I think the, the main thing is that I think it's starting to be pretty apparent that a lot of these companies uh, that are being formed out of academia um, then go back and, and, and help the academic institute, right, with collaborations. I mean, a lot of, you know, the academic institute, what they you need most of the time is just more funds to, to fund the research, right? So a lot of the times, once you have companies or once you have external entities, uh, you know, that came out of UCSF, for example, they would go back to UCSF and then, you know, work with a lab, fund some of the researchers, these, all these, um, you know, um, uh, agreements between uh, companies and, and academic institutions. So I think that's becoming more and more prevalent and hopefully that will um, just kind of get this feedback loop, loop going. Yeah, but you, you're definitely spot on. I think that I, I feel this as well here. And it was the first time for me as well. When when I came here, um, I got the notion, like the administration said openly, we, we don't see all of you. Most of you will not be in academia, but we want our alumni to be as higher up as in the hierarchy in, the, in, in everything else, in pharma, in, in biotech, whatever. And and promote this UCSF science brand, and and then come back exactly as you said, and then it will circle back. Those connection live on, and it, it will circle back. That's yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, that would be very um, a, a great change, and I'm I'm excited to hear about that. I don't think it happens everywhere. I'm pretty sure it doesn't, but I think it is changing in many places. Yeah, that culture. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think that we're noticing a change of this. Like, in, especially I don't I don't know why in the last year over like over COVID and everything, that uh, all of these things got uh, a higher um, a higher like uh, um, emphasis. Like communicating your science, like why vaccine is important, that needs to be put in very simple terms and not not terrifying people and and. Uh, this one like one aspect of this. So currently you are at Century Therapeutics. Yeah. So be happy if you want to talk a bit about science there and this experience. Uh, this is uh, currently in like almost a one year anniversary there. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, in a week. Um, so <laughs> exactly a year um, there. Um, I can't. I can't believe it's been. <laughs> it went out <laughs> fast. Uh, but there's a lot to do. So Century Therapeutics is is a you know oncology drug development company, right? So our 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 main mission is to develop novel therapies for for cancer, and obviously that's a huge undertaking, um, and it's something that many many companies are trying to do, right? So what you know why is Century Therapeutics special, uh, or what you know sets it apart? I mean, I think uh, every first of all every different you know company has its own uh, modality, right? So we're um, you know in the cell therapy space, which is basically for those who doesn't don't uh, or not familiar, is basically you're delivering cells as your therapy, live cells, right? Um, a lot of people are familiar with CAR T therapy, which is where uh, a patient's own immune cells 
um, are taken out of the body and then they're genetically engineered to express a receptor um, to, a, to a, um, an antigen or basically a protein that is showed on the surface of the, of the cancer cell. And then the, these, these T cells, in this case, uh, are put back into the patient in order to um, basically target the, con- the cancer. And, and this has been very, very um, fruitful and very successful in a subset of cancers um, thus far. So uh, Century Therapeutics is in the same space. However, there are a few really, really important differences. One is that we're uh, taking a different uh, approach, an allogenic, allogeneic approach, where we're not using a patient's own immune cells, but we're, uh, we're uh, creating uh, the immune cells uh, you know, at Century, and then we're going to infuse into the patients. The second really important difference is that we're using IPSC, which is induced pluripotent stem cells, as our starting material. So we're not taking, you know, donor uh, blood or donor cells and then, you know, engineering them. No, we're starting with um, stem cells, basically. And we're engineering them to have all these, um, you know, with a, a lot of different modification, I'm not going to get go into that, but we're engineering them. And then at the end of the day, we're differentiating them to immune effector cells that have, um, you know, both knock-ins and knockouts of, of, of genes of interest. And, and ideally, these would be then uh, later, um, introduced into the patient and target the cancer. And so for me, again, it was a great opportunity because first of all, I just, again, sometimes I go with just what is interesting and seems exciting to me. I was looking on the cancer space and I just thought that cell therapy is just taking off because I saw CAR-T was very successful in one type of cancer. I thought this is an amazing technology. This is amazing advancement. But then I heard about allogeneic cell therapy and I thought, wow, this is even cooler because then you can, uh, you know, make it off the shelf and just it will be applicable to more people, right, all over the world. And then I heard about IPSC derived allogenic, uh, so, and then there's just a handful of companies, Century being one of them, that they're in this space. Um, another one is Fate Therapeutics at the Bay, in the Bay, and I think they're in San Diego. Um, and so I thought that to myself, that this is really like the, you know, the top, this is the pushing the boundaries of cell therapy right now. And so I was very fortunate to be able to join the company. And again, it's at, on the smaller scale, which I, I love, uh, where, you you know, there are just more things to do, but, you know, wearing more hats and being in charge of different things is something I enjoy. So very fortunate to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope that answered the question. I'm not sure what the question was anymore. Yeah. No, that, that was great and and sounds very, very interesting and very promising. Uh, personally, I'm also, I'm, I'm very intrigued from day one with CAR T cells and everything. My my master's was in differentiating of hematopoietic stem cells, of, of the blood the, the blood cell, cell uh, lines uh, and the T cell uh, domain was so complex. I was in the monocyte and the dendritic cells and that was a bit simpler um and when carty started i was wow mind-blowing and exactly as, as you mentioned the, the the cream on top is allergenic and the, the cherry on top is the uh, ipc uh, allergenic right. derived yeah that was that is amazing so uh, I'm, I'm i'm very i have a personal uh, personal incentive to see uh, uh a better cancer therapy going into market um, uh, from my, my personal back backstory, but I'm very happy to see like good people and passionate people working on that. So, so uh, really best of luck on that. And so we, we talk a lot about like, a lot of people talk about uh, different like hubs of innovations. 
Boston is one of them. The Bay Area is one of them, San Diego. Oad, I want you to advocate for Seattle. I love Seattle. I love, love, love the, the city. And I'm going to be visiting there soon. But what is, what is the uniqueness of, of Seattle? I, yeah, that's, you know, first of all, thanks. I uh, appreciate that. I've been here for eight years and it is a great city. Um, so I, I think for me, and again, uh, I've, I've never lived in the Bay Area or Boston. I've been there, you know, several times, obviously. But um, I think one of the one of the unique things in Seattle um, is, for, so first of all, you have the, 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 the combination of, of high tech um, and biotech, right? So that's one interesting combination because you do have Amazon, Microsoft, and even in Google. And even though it's they're not necessarily in this space, there's a lot of uh, cross-fertilization and things that are happening that you can feel that are impacting one another. And then I think, um, in a way, Seattle, maybe because it's uh, it's uh, you know maybe because it's not as you know not as a not a, such a huge hub like um, you know the Bay Area or um, or uh, or Boston. Maybe because of that, I think there's there's more there's a bigger culture of sharing. That's at least what I feel, felt between you know different entities or different um, you know different different entities or, or academic. I, I feel like there's um, maybe maybe it's just me, but I feel like there's a there's a more a culture of sharing knowledge than necessarily uh, you would expect from from other from other places. Um, so that's maybe some 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 reason to advocate. Of course, I don't want to have to mention that it's beautiful. <laughs> Here with all the lakes and the and the mountains, uh, and so the Pacific Northwest is a great area. Um, so uh, yeah, I think Seattle is a great place to do science for sure. Um, and again, there's a lot of opportunities here, uh, and it's just growing. I mean, it's growing. The number of companies, the number of startups, is just ballooning here in Seattle. Um, so I think yeah, it's, you should take a look into it. Yeah, I, I think half our lab is uh, UW grads. Uh, and they're all talking about like, yeah, yeah. what are we going to do when we come back? Because yeah. yeah, and and I completely share this. Uh, my my personal experience from Seattle, a couple of of uh, quite extend extended visits and working with the scientific community there is is exactly as you as you mentioned is the sharing is the fact that the science is more open less. There is the notion of the are the rule of the game. Okay, there are, there's some competitiveness, but. It's not as competitive. It's not. It's not. Um, it, it is. It is cost fertilization. It is. It is sharing. It is more than you see in other places, and, and I love that. And it's, yeah, um, yeah. I don't want to take a lot, of, a lot more of your time, but there is one more thing we talked about, and and um, I, I'd be dying to hear your your perspective on that. So you wrote a LinkedIn piece on something that every scientist, no matter what his position, what is, where he is on scientific ground and uh, experience, and for some of us, it just gets stronger. And we, we all know it as the imposter syndrome, is the, 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 thing, the, the notion that you are, you are out of place and soon you'll be, everybody find out that you know that you shouldn't be there and, and what, what it makes, what it makes you do, but yeah. be happy to get your perspective on on this. Yeah, I wrote this um, LinkedIn, you know, short article, or whatever. Like it's a minute read. Um, after years of, of thinking about it, so it's been on my mind for quite some time before I wrote that. 
Um, and I wrote it at like four in the morning one night. I just decided, you know, I have to get this out because I've been feeling it for so long. Um, so that's sometimes you do that in four in the morning. Um, but just kind of to uh, circle back, I mean, I think, um, you know, I like I, you know, like a lot of scientists that leave academia and venture into the industry, you basically get to an unfamiliar place, right? That's like the first thing you notice, right? You've been in academia for so long, you know, PhD and postdocs or eight, 10 years, masters, right? Eight, 10 years. You know the terrain, you know how academia functions, you know you know how things uh, move around, but then you go out and you, you, you see all these new things, all these new, um, you know, all these new uh, roles, all these new, um, you know, names of different positions, and you have like a hierarchy that you're not really sure what's going on. And then a lot of people think you're a genius, right? You come out uh, from a PhD, and a postdoc, and you're a computational biologist that did pa- published all these papers, and everybody else is like, "Oh, you're you must be a genius. You must have like something that you know not nobody really has in this company." And the truth of the matter is, it's not true. You're just like everybody else. You spent your time, you know, devoting into some spe- like in something specific, and you're passionate about that. So you you became really you know well skilled and well versed in that area, right? Um, but it's not something inherently, you're not inherently smarter than everybody else. And so I think these are, the, these are the, the, the combination of that. The fact that, first of all, you come to a place that's a lot of the things are new and unfamiliar. And then everybody's assuming that you're like Einstein, right? These two things together, for me at least, um, created a feeling that, you know, persisted for a long time. And I still have that feeling sometimes of inadequacy, right? So, um someone will will eventually figure out that you're not as smart as they think you are or someone will figure out that you know um you 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 can't do everything that they think you can do or something like that right so it's a feeling that you have just you know randomly here and there um and at the beginning i was really uh you know i, I felt that it was it was really debilitating in a way because it may, makes you feel anxious and you know uh and stressed out um, then I did some research and I realized, hey, it's all like, there's it's almost all academics feel that, you know, when they go into the industry. So that made me feel better, you know, on one hand that it's not just me. But then I I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Like, is it really is it is, is it just a feeling or is this something behind it? And and I, I realized that for me, um, you know, it it's part of what I when I push myself, when I because at the end of the day, you kind of have a postdoc, you can either take a position of doing exactly what you did in your postdoc, and then you won't feel that because you'll be doing exactly the same. But if you go into the industry, especially for us in a small company, a smaller company, you have a lot of other roles that you just have to take and start working with, even though you don't necessarily have the right, you know, background or the right, you know, experience for that. And I actually f- found that, that for myself, it's it's the right thing to do because it helps you grow. And so I'm a very I'm a huge believer in the growth mindset in general. Um, I don't believe anybody has anything you know that they're born with that gives them the ability to do everything we're doing. I believe it's all growth. It's all things you learn and all in, intentionally. If you're intentional about your growth and your learning, you can achieve really remarkable things. So um, every time now, every time I feel that way, it just reminds me that I'm on the right journey. I'm on the path to growing because it means I'm doing something that I don't necessarily have figured it out all yet, right? If I don't have this feeling, it means it's too comfortable. I already know exactly what I'm doing. There's no challenge. Everything's too easy. It's not the right thing, right? 
But if I have this feeling, it means I'm growing. It's the right path. So it kind of ha- I kind of have it, I had a change of heart about that feeling <laughs> during the oh, year. Yeah, that's such a fresh perspective on this because we all, when we talk about it, it comes out very, very negative because we give it a negative context. But the way you look at that is 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 very refreshing and very like amazing. If I feel that, it means that I'm out of my comfort zone, and this is exactly what I meant to do. This yeah. is this is me learning. Wow, yeah. that's yeah. That that is that is amazing for, for me. For example, like uh, dealing with with it, transitioning from a PhD in a, I, I would take it a step back. I did my master's in biotech engineering in in hematopoietic cancers, and then instead of taking a position uh, in the same field for a PhD in a different institute, I chose to talk, took my expertise. To a very to a very small pond, which is hearing with deafness genetics, and 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 employing this there, that was the best decision I ever did. But again, like transitioning from this small, very low funded, very low key field to like a, a very successful lab at UCSF was, I, I felt this many many times, and I think that for me, what helped me is uh, to deal with this is to. Really straight at the get-go, when I didn't understand stuff, I didn't hide behind this. Yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be this hot shot coming in. No, no, there's many, many stuff I don't know. And I'll be appreciative that you, I can learn this from you. Even if you're a grad student, there is no, uh, uh, like nothing demeaning of it, of, of a person learning. And and I think it's it's like a different perspective on the same, on the same issue. I'm out of the comfort zone. And, and I'm on the learning journey. Learning, um, uh, journey. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, I mean, again, even now in my current role, right? I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the head of cognitional biology, so I'm supposedly supposed to know everything about bioinformatics that ever, ever has been invented. Obviously, that's not the case. Nobody can you know, handle all of the things in cognitional biology or bioinformatics in general. So asking questions and basically being honest about what you know, it's okay to say, hey, I've never you know, done that before. Um, but I can, so here's the thing we're talking about, about skills you can transfer from your PhD or postdoc, right. To, to the, to the next, to the industry. I mean, that's something I, I think is really important. Basically to me is the can do attitude is really important because I find myself saying a lot, something like, especially since I'm not like my background is not in cancer, is not in cell therapy, is not in immunology. Right. Many times I find myself saying, Hey, I've never done that or looked at that in my life but I can figure it out. I know how to figure things out because that's what you do in your PhD and postdoc, you figure things out. You don't necessarily always know, right? Um, so that this idea of I can always learn something new and I'm not afraid of doing it and I love doing that actually is something that also helps, I think, with that um, imposter syndrome when it hits. It's like, yes, I, I can figure it out, I can learn it and I, I'm not afraid of saying that it's something that I'm not, you know, I haven't done, it's it's okay, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's also something I, I, I... I, I talk to my both my kids at home and and young like trainees in the lab. You can do you can be one of one of two. You can be the people who says why not doing stuff, or you can be the, the this person who says why not let's do it. Yeah, it's the same phrase but different mindset. Yeah. Oh, I, this has been awesome, great, great journey. You're my you're our first Seattle lead. Uh, that is interviewing and I again I can't emphasize enough how much I love the, the Pacific Northwest and and this specific town and city specifically and it seems 
and sounds you're doing highly impactful, very important job. So thank you for that. And, and thank you for your fresh perspective on, on many, many things that we have uh, set this uh, podcast for. And yeah, that a lot. Thank you yeah. so much. So first of all, thank you all for, for um, inviting me. This has been just a pleasure and a joy. I'm so very grateful for that. And of course, um, you know, I'm happy if anybody wants, any of the listeners want to reach out with questions. I'm always happy to answer and, and also just talk about science or communication or industry. So I'm very, you know, um, I'm happy to, uh, to, um, to talk to anybody who wants to. So happy to, uh, you know, provide my email and contacts or just hit me on LinkedIn. I'm there. Um, so, and, and just in general, yeah, I know, I know you're coming <laughs> to Seattle soon. So we have to, uh, to have to meet and, uh, and have some of, uh, I'm not a, I am a Seattleite, but I'm definitely on a coffee snob, uh, like <laughs> many people here. So we can sit anywhere you want and just have a cup of coffee. Um, yeah. So really looking forward to that. Me too. Yeah. Great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. it. Thank you so much.